All right. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Psalms, right smack in the middle of your Bible. Before we turn, let me make one, uh, two announcements. Number one, thank you all if you came out for Habitat on Saturday. Um, we had a great turnout again, and I'm very thankful that you took your uh, Saturday morning to come out and serve uh, with Habitat and with RUF. So thank you for doing that, and thank Carol Miller for organizing that. But, and then also wanted to make an announcement on your announcement sheet. Uh, for the girls, you need to know that uh, there is a girls' coffee and conversation with Susie. Susie told me to add and candy and cookies. Uh, and so, girls, Susie, my wife, for those of you who don't know, she's in the back. She really wants to get to hang out with you guys, but with two little ones running around, it's hard for her to, to get on campus much. And so, one way for us to uh, allow her to spend more time with you all is to just have you come over to the house while the girls are napping. And so come over on Friday. If you don't like coffee, don't worry about it. We'll have hot chocolate, whatever you want to do. But she would love to spend time with you. And it's just a drop-in thing. So even if you come by for an hour, 30 minutes, whatever, or stay the whole time, whatever you want to do. All right, we've been looking at the book of Psalms uh, this semester. Last week we looked at Psalm 73 and we talked about doubt. Specifically, we talked about uh, the causes of doubt. And more importantly, we looked at how you get through doubt. Well, we're going to shift gears slightly and tonight we're going to look at guilt. And we're going to look at how you get through guilt. And to do that, we're going to look at Psalm 51. Someone once said that guilt is a lot like an iceberg. There doesn't appear to be that much on the surface, but once you get beneath the surface, you know, like an iceberg, uh, you see something that's very extensive. In fact, I would say that most people, most of the problems that you encounter on a, a regular, weekly, daily basis, anger, depression, anxiety, in some way can be... Uh, taken back uh, to the issue of guilt. And so tonight we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it from Psalm 51. If you have your Bible, and even if you don't, please stand if you would like as I read God's Word from Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, 
And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me pray for us. This is God's holy word. Father, we thank you for your inspired uh, scriptures that are breathed out by you. Father, this is your revelation to us. And so you talk about all things uh, that are related to our lives. From guilt to doubt and how to deal with that uh, to so many other things. And Father, you call us to bring your, our lives under your word. And, and so we pray that we would come under your word uh, this evening. And that you would uh, show us more about who we are. But you would also show us uh, more about who you are and the incredible mercy and the incredible grace that comes through Jesus. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. Please be seated. Look with me at Psalm 51. If you look there at that psalm, you'll see some words at the beginning of this psalm. You actually see um, these words at the beginning of most all of the psalms. They come before verse 1 and they kind of introduce the psalms. Those words are called superscriptions. And what they do in this particular psalm, sometimes they tell you who wrote the psalm or uh, those sort of things. But in this psalm, they're particularly important in that they give us the context for Psalm 51. They give us the background and tell us uh, what was happening uh, in and around this psalm. Look at uh, the superscription with me. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David... When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in with Bathsheba. And so you see the background of Psalm 51 is found in 2 Samuel verses or chapters 11 and 12. I encourage you to read that that sometime on your own. But let me give you a quick summary uh, of that uh, this psalm in the context surrounding it. David has an affair with the wife of one of his oldest, most dearest friends. You see, David, when he was running from Saul, he had around him, during that time, uh, some of the most loyal guys in the world. They were so loyal uh, to him. He had them gathered around them because they would protect him. They were brave and loyal soldiers. And the Bible in in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 says that they were called David's mighty men. Because they were so loyal and they had been through with David through thick and thin. A man named Uriah the Hittite was one of those men. He was one of those loyal men 
to David. And one night, while Uriah was out defending Israel, defending David on David's orders, fighting in battle, David sees Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, on a rooftop and goes and sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And in order to cover up his crime, David calls for Uriah to come in from battle and he tries to get Uriah to sl- or, yeah, he tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that he would think the child was his. Now I can't think of a more stupid idea than that. But David does that. And Uriah is so honorable, he's so upright that he refuses to come in from battle because he is not going to leave his fellow soldiers out to fight without being by their side. And so David doesn't know what to do and he finally has orders to have Uriah killed in order to cover up his sin. And so not only that, he sent Uriah, but he also sent some other mighty men, some other soldiers to the hottest spot in the battle so that they can be gunned down and killed. And sure enough, they are. Now think about this. It would be hard for David to screw up his life any more than he has right at this very moment. Think about it. Adultery. He coveted. He committed murder, and it could be said multiple murders, because not only Uriah was killed, but many men were killed. Not only that, he had lost the trust, more than likely, the public trust of the people in Israel. About this time, a man, a friend, named Nathan, comes to see David. And I say a friend because remember, we talk about a lot in RUF. A friend is someone who will A, tell you the truth, and B, will point out your blind spots and help you to see things that you can't see for yourselves. David was that man, for, or Nathan was that man for David. He comes to David and he tells David a story about a poor man who had a little lamb. And a rich man comes and steals this little lamb from the poor man and enjoys a feast at the poor man's expense. David hears this story and he becomes indignant. He becomes angry and he says, that man deserves to be killed. And Nathan looks at David, the king of Israel, and says, David, you are that man. At that very moment, he says, you are that man that stole the poor man's lamb and took him for yourself. You see, David at that very moment, at that very moment, experienced intense conviction and his house of cards come crumbling down. At that moment, David was deeply moved by the realization that what he had done was deeply wrong and deeply sinful. And out of that, we get Psalm 51. Out of that pain, out of that realization that what he had done was wrong, comes Psalm 51. Two thoughts, real quick. 
Number one is, first, I want you to see how the Bible treats its heroes. Isn't it interesting how the Bible treats its heroes? No hero in the Bible gets off without some embarrassing tale told about them. Think about it. Read through the Bible. Why does the Bible do that? Why? Because, friends, there's only one hero in the Bible. And that hero is the Lord Jesus Christ. But more importantly, I think there's something more immediate here for us than that. And that is, how do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with sin? I don't know about you, but when I read that story, and when I hear about the context for this psalm, I'm like, how do you get through something like that? Think about it. Think about if that was you. How do you deal with that pain? How do you deal with the guilt? How do you handle it? Can you get through it? That's what I'm asking myself. David got through it. The Bible tells us that he did. We read that he got through it in Psalm 51. And here's what I want to say to you. Friends, if David got through what he went, if what he did, if he dealt with that, then you can deal with whatever it is you brought into this room tonight. And so that's what we want to talk about. How do you handle your guilt? Where do you go with it? How do you deal with it? And the first thing is, if we're going to handle our guilt, we've got to observe its effects on our lives. If you have an outline with you, on the back I've got... This is the most points I've ever had. And if you've been coming to RUF, you know that normally I have three or two points and tonight I have six. But I promise you, it is short. So, observe its effects on our life. We've got to observe the effects of guilt and sin. And this, this passage shows us that. David gives us all kinds of insights here. First, he says that guilt is a stain. He talks about it, uh, about cleansing. He says, wash me, I want to be whiter than snow. In other words, guilt deteriorates. Just like a soiled garment will eventually wear the garment out, sin and guilt will eventually eat away at your soul. It will eventually take its toll on your conscience. And we see that here. Secondly, we see that guilt is crushing. David said that God will finally accept, over later in the psalm, will finally accept a broken and a contrite heart. The word for contrite is a word that's derived from an ancient form of execution. Listen to how they used to execute people, which this word is derived from. They would tie people down. Like they would tie a man down, arms, everything, and they would place a huge boulder gently on his chest so that he could exhale, only exhale, but he couldn't breathe in. And so he would literally suffocate. You got that picture? That's what David is saying about sin. That it crushes you. That it feels like it is taking your very breath so that you aren't able to sustain life. Third, we see that guilt and sin has a physical effect on you. David asked, I love that verse, I mean it's really scary actually, so I don't love it, but the verse which where he talks about uh, God healing the bones that he has broken. Think about that image. He's basically saying, 
that so, he feels like because of his sin, some of his bones have been broken. In Psalm 32, he talks about his bones growing old and his vitality being sapped, zapped right out of him. David is basically saying that sin and guilt in his heart actually had an effect on him physically. Anybody ever blew it big time, sinned? I don't know what you've done. I've been there. You've been there and it actually physically affects you. You can't sleep. You don't want to eat. You feel like physically like you're going to puke because of what you've done. It's actually made you sick. It affects you physically. That's what David is saying about the effects of guilt. Secondly, we see that if we're going to deal with our guilt, not only must we observe its effects, but we also must lay a foundation of grace. Look at verse 1. David begins his prayer by looking up into heaven and, and he sees three things out of his depth, out of his sin and guilt. He says... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast, some of you might have unfailing love, according to your abundant mercy or compassion, blot out my transgressions. Where does the hope come from in dealing with your guilt and your sin after you've blown it big time? The hope comes from, Scripture says, from the fact that God is merciful. That God has an unfailing love and a great compassion towards His people. The Hebrew word for mercy here means to find the favor that you do not deserve. The word for steadfast means a love that is loyal, a love that is faithful. It will never let you down and never let you go. The word for abundant mercy is interesting. It's a word for a mother's womb. And so it gets at the idea of a tender care that considers the weakness of a child. And so here's what David is saying. He looks up into heaven and he says, Oh God, show me a favor that I do not deserve. Oh God, show me a love that will never let me go. Oh God, show me a tender care that considers my weakness. Here's what I want you to see. David doesn't seek change from blowing it big time by beating himself up. But he seeks change and his heart is melted because he sees the love of the Father for him. He sees and looks square in the eye of the lover of his soul. And it melts his heart and he begins to change. How do we know that? Because he goes on from here and confesses his sin after looking and laying a foundation of grace. And that leads to our third point. Look at verse 2 and 3. The third point is we have to be honest about our sin if we're ever going to deal with our guilt. Verses 2 and 3. Look at this. Cleanse me from whose transgression? My. Cleanse me from my iniquity, my transgression, my sin. If you're ever going to deal with your guilt... If you're ever going to experience change in your life, you have to own your sin. You've got to own it and be honest about it. For example, you could say something like this. You could say, you know what? I really should try to be more truthful. To be more truthful with people. 
And that's good, and that might be so, but that's not nearly as powerful or helpful as saying something like this, Lord, I blew it. I shaded the truth in order to make myself look better. I shaded the truth because I didn't want to be embarrassed and I deliberately disobeyed you so that I wouldn't have to be inconvenienced. You see the difference? Instead of saying, well, I should have done that, but if we're ever going to deal with our guilt, we have to face our sin. No excuses. No minimizing. If you don't own your sin, you'll never change. And you'll never root it out from the deepest places in your heart. We see, fourthly, not only to get rid of our guilt or to deal with it, do we need to observe the effects of guilt in our life, but lay a foundation of grace, be honest about our sin. But fourthly, we need to see our sin in relation to God. In 2 Corinthians 7, it's interesting, Paul talks about the difference between worldly sorrow and true repentance. David knows the difference as well. How do we know? Because verse 4 tells us. That's, this is the key verse, I believe, in, in the whole psalm. Against you and you only have I sinned, says David. This is a vital point that brings us to the heart of how David dealt with his guilt and dealt with his sin. And it helps us as well. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, says that in order for us to experience repentance that leads to new life, we have to understand the difference between remorse and between remorse and repentance. You see, in remorse, you only look at the mess you're in, the mess you've made, and how much of a fool that was made of you. If you're remorseful, you say things like this, I was such a fool, I'm such an idiot, I can't believe I did this. I brought shame on myself. I brought shame on my family. What if someone finds out? What if my friends find out? What if my family finds out? What if my boyfriend or girlfriend finds out? I've made such a mess. In sum, remorse is just being sorry that you got caught. In sum, remorse is just an aggravated form of self-pity. I've been in college ministry now starting my fourth year. I tell people all the time, 50% of my time is spent dealing with relationships. Because that's where y'all are. Uh, You're dating, people are getting married, engaged, breaking up, all kinds of stuff. Well, I can't tell you the number of times I've witnessed the famous... Let's give it another try, a dating relationship. And you've probably seen this too. The girl gets upset, let's say, because the guy isn't showing her enough attention or is avoiding her or ignoring her. Or maybe the relationship is a little bit too physical. Uh, and so she says, I'm just, we're, we're going to have to, I'm going to have to leave you. I'm going to have to break up if this continues. He feels guilty and he resolves to do better. Okay, and in his remorse, he does better for about a month. And then what happens? Back to the same old patterns. Back to the same old way of relating. So is he remorseful or is he repentant? Friends, he's remorseful. 
not repentant. I see it all the time. And also, another point that I want to make is remorse leads you to use your remorse to warrant God's forgiveness. And so you say things like this if you're remorseful. Oh God, don't you see how sorry I am? Oh God, don't you see how bad I feel? Don't you see how much I've cried over this? Don't you love me now? Do you forgive me now? Oh God, my heart is surrendered. It is really submitted, I promise. Friends, you cannot use your confession to establish a relationship with God any more than I have to remarry Susie every time I offend her in our marriage. The marriage is still intact. It's the enjoyment of that marriage that is in jeopardy. And here's what I'm trying to say. Friends, the reason why you don't experience change in your life and that repentance doesn't bring about transformation is because most of you are dating God. You're dating God, and here's how you know if you're dating God. When you blow it and you fail and you mess up miserably, you think forgiveness is in jeopardy. You think that God might not forgive you, and that's totally not true. The heart of the gospel is that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, no condemnation, past, present, future. That's what it means to be married to God, meaning that you know that relationship is not in jeopardy. Sure, the enjoyment of that relationship is going to be if you're living in willful willful sin, but He's always going to be there and He's always going to love you. And when you realize that, guess what? You're going to start to learn what true repentance really is. Repentance, friends, drives you away from God. What did I say repentance? Remorse drives you away. I thought, man, something didn't sound right. Remorse drives you away from God, but repentance drives you closer to God. Why? Because repentance realizes that it's against God and God only that you have sinned. Repentance realizes that at the root of your sin is fundamentally a refusal to believe that God really is that good to you. David realized that before he sinned and broke the law, his sin actually was distrusting God's goodness. David realized that he just didn't break God's rule, but that he broke God's heart. You see the difference? Friends, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Romans 2.4 Fifth, we see that in order to deal with our guilt, we must also recognize the root of our sin. Look at verse 5, another strong verse. He says, Surely I was sinful from birth. Surely I was sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. There's no better verse to talk about our original sin and the fact that we're born sinful than this. David here is a wonderful guide in this whole passage, but particularly here to show us how to get lasting and real change in our life. 
And he begins by saying this. David says, guys, you can't settle for superficial answers to your sin. You can't settle for these just surface type uh, answers to the issue of your sin. He says, if you're going to change and you're going to be transformed, you have got to face the reality that the problem is in your heart and that it goes much deeper than than you realize and that it's rooted in your human nature and it goes to the core of who you are. That's what he's saying. I remember when I was 10 years old, I played uh, Little League Baseball. Some of you have heard this story. But uh, I was actually, when I was 10, hit in the face with a baseball. So if you're wondering why my nose is so funny looking, it's probably why. But uh, it actually looks a lot better than it could could have looked. But I was uh, actually watching a friend of mine warm up in the bullpen. He was warming up, pitching. They had these low fences back then, none of these high fences to keep the ball in. And I was down by the catcher, and I was watching him throw pitches Uh, to the catcher, I was talking to a person, a friend on my left, and at one point in the conversation, I decided to turn around and watch the pitcher. And as I turn around, I am met right between the eyes with a fastball. Now, look, people break their nose all the time, okay? Meaning like, you know, you'll get an elbow in a pickup game of basketball, and and it might be a little bump on your nose, and it'll heal itself. Your nose might be a little crooked, and people just go on. I know people that have done that, and it's not a big deal. Not me. (laughs) I remember going to the doctor the next day, and the doctor looks at me, and he says, Jason, your nose is so messed up and so broken that it doesn't matter. You can go out tomorrow and play tackle football, Without pads, you can, somebody can hit you right in the nose again with their fist and it isn't going to matter. Because your nose couldn't be broken any worse than it is right now. That's a true story. Couldn't be broken any worse than it is right now. My nose was broken so badly that it couldn't be fixed. It actually, friends, had to be rebuilt and remade. Likewise... What we see here is what David is saying is that our sin problem is so deep and we are so messed up at the core of who we are that when God comes in to work on our hearts, He doesn't fix us, but He desires to, He has to remake us and rebuild us. It's interesting, David knows this. He knows this because what does he say? Create In me, a clean heart. That word create is the same word used in Genesis 1-1 when it talks about God making the world out of nothing. God's work of repair, friends, in your heart is not a fix, but it's a whole new operation. Friends, we don't come to God to get repaired. We come to God to get remade. And what Psalm 51 is saying, and what David is asking for, is a whole new life. He's asking for a whole new person. Why? Because he knows that if he's ever going to get a new fruit, 
that he has to have a new root in his heart. He knows that he must be recreated. And here's what I'm saying. You can try to reform your life and you can try to pull your bootstraps, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and grit your teeth and try harder to be more holy and stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. And you know what? That might work for a week or two or three and it might be good, but it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go deep enough because it deals just with the externals. And David says that it's an issue of the heart. That's the target. And so what does this mean? If we're going to get to our hearts, it means, number one, that we have to stop making excuses for our sin. And it means, number two, that we have to realize that the problem is not your roommate. The problem is not your parents. The problem is not your boyfriend or girlfriend. The problem is not your circumstances. The problem is you in your heart. G.K. Chesterton once was asked by someone, Mr. Chesterton, what do you think the biggest problem in the world is today? And he says, I am. I am. You must stop blaming everyone else for your sin and start taking responsibility for it. That's the only way you'll ever get rid of it and change. And we see lastly that if we're going to deal with our guilt, lastly and most importantly, we have to apply the remedy or the cure for our guilt. Look at verse 7. It says, cleanse me with the hyssop, hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be made whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. You see, in the Old Testament, God told the people that when they sinned, that if they wanted to be made right with Him again, they had to take a lamb and sacrifice it for their sins. And then sometime in certain situations... They would take a branch of hyssop. They used hyssop because the branches were really stiff and sturdy. And the leaves, this sounds funny, but it's true, were really hairy. (laughs) The leaves were hairy, which made it a good branch for sprinkling uh, things. And so what they would do was take these hyssop branches, dip it in the blood of the sacrifice, and they would sprinkle it over the person that desired to be clean before God. And then the person that was officiating would look at them once the hyssop had sprinkled blood on them and they would say, you are clean. David had grown up with that. He had seen that all of his life. He had seen people that were down and out, that had blown it, that seemed to have no hope for their sins. He had seen them come in sacrifice an animal and seeing people take hyssop branches and pour and sprinkle blood over them and have the man that was in charge say, you are clean. And so David understood this. And when he asked God here to cleanse him with the hyssop, he really meant, God, cleanse me with your blood. Forgive me and regard me as clean. Clean me and wash me whiter than snow. You know that 
we're going to the cross, right? Because we always go to Jesus. Because all of Scripture is about Him. What does that point to? You see, the hyssop branch in the sprinkling of the blood actually points us to Jesus. The one who would come many years after David, though in the line of David, would come and live a perfect and obedient life and then go to the cross as the sacrificial lamb on our behalf, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and He would go and die on that cross so that there's no more lambs, there's no more hyssop branches because He died once and for all for our sin. And when we are covered by His blood, the blood He has shed for us, that is when we experience and receive the mercy of God. It's only by the blood Have you experienced that mercy tonight? Some of you are so full of shame. You're so full of guilt because of your sin. My prayer has been all day is that you would be encouraged. That you would see this as an invitation. Because it is. Psalm 51 is an invitation for those that are full of shame, full of guilt, saying there's no way God can forgive me for what I've done. Psalm 51 says, oh yes there is. Psalm 51 is an invitation for you to come and be cleansed. For you to come and have your sins washed whiter than snow. For you to come and experience the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. Will you come? And it doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or two weeks, or whether you're not a Christian. The invitation is for all of us to come in the midst of our sin and brokenness and be cleansed and have your sins washed whiter than snow. Will you come? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you paid it all. That when we sin, that we don't have to go and find a lamb 